<laughs> oh, I've had enough Oreos and I'm loopy enough that don't encourage me too much or it's just going to devolve. He's just into straight the... tripping on Oreos. <laughs> yeah. It's like young Peter bouncing off the walls off a, off a thing of Smarties. Exactly. He's got Oreos in him now. Yeah. <laughs> Watch out. Oh, no. They say that kids act crazy from sugar, not because of the sugar, but because parents start treating them differently and like suggesting <laughs> that they act crazy. So then they do. Who's the, who's the parent in this situation? Of the world. The rest of us. The world is Peter's parent. <laughs> The world is Peter's parent. Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. I'm your host, Sean Hartman, leader of a hot new cover band performing the works of Godly and Cream and the New York Rock and Roll Ensemble. We're called Freedom Burger and the Snack Attacks. <laughs> Ew. We also uh. do a cover of the Ninja Turtles theme song, by the way. Oh, Huh. That's pretty cool. Just to, spice, just to spice it up a little bit. You just went from heavy cringe to really pulling me in, actually. And we actually do most of the songs kind of in a Ninja Turtles style, like, vibe, you know, genre, <laughs> energy. Is this selling it better for you? Yeah. All I right, kind of cool. want to bring my new band to play with you. Can we open for you? Sure. What are you guys called? Well, I was going to leave our university's prestigious jazz program. And I just wanted to start a band that really captures the grit of Kalamazoo. So I'm starting the Kalamazoo crust punk combo. (laughs) I think I used to buy crust punk combos at the (laughs) Dairy Mart. Uh, is that like Lucy's? Like they ripped open a big bag and put a few in a little sandwich bag <laughs> yeah. by the register? Exactly. Yeah, just get one at a time if you want. Well, thank you, co-host Jeremy Ruggles. Oh, yeah, and my yeah, name wait, is Jeremy Ruggles. Do, do, does your band have a name? Yeah, Kalamazoo Crust Punk Combo. Oh, I thought it was a Kalamazoo Crust Punk Combo and then the band name was coming after that. No, it's a oh. take on New York rock and roll ensemble. <laughs> That's the record we're going to do this week. And see, it's funnier now because he explained it. All right, cool. We'll just, yeah, just edit out me asking the question and you can just like edit in me laughing and getting it the first time. No, it's all staying. Shit. <laughs> well, I am co-host Peter Cook. Never cared for what they do. Never cared for what they know, but I know. Again with the poetry. Yeah, I did that last week, too. Yeah, Peter's big league in us over here. Is that your new shtick? Are you like Peter the Poet? Peter the Poet. That's me. Wow. Quoting other people's lyrics. Last week, of course, it was Jane Sibbery's song that I quoted. This week, it was Metallica. (laughs) 
So <laughs> I don't know why I'm quoting Metallica. Uh, the, the, the poetry of Metallica. Yes. So you are uh, more correctly than Peter, the plagiarizing poet. Ooh. Yes. It's but it's uh, very alliterative, right? So it it all works. So it's fun. Yeah, it's fun. Yeah, <laughs> we it's did fun. it. All right. Is there a record we're talking about, or is it just more of this? New York rock and roll ensemble eponymous self-titled those things mean the same thing from my understanding i believe you're correct album 1968 1968 at co-records i'm gonna play the song begin to burn to give you a little taste get that burnt taste in our mouth no one's watching you Touching you, no one's calling your name. No one's feeling you, no one's seeing you, no one knows you're the same. Nine, ten, walking. Walking before was never hard You are up and running Scraping your feet along the tar When the crowd began to stare You were thinking of your hair Then your face began to burn learn to talk you can hold her gently you might as well have held the dog someone left the oven on you forgot to do the lawn when your face began to burn co-host would have picked a song that really shows the marriage of classical influence with rock and roll influence into one song which there's some of that in that song but not a lot i just picked a song i like to start (laughs) that's a great song though and i feel like it has a little bit of the classical influence but it's done in a way that other bands of this time period were doing so it wouldn't jump out at you if you just heard that song blind you wouldn't be like oh wow i love the classical sounds on here yeah and i like this one because they actually mix it in a little more there's other examples throughout the album where it's like starkly on one side of the fence or the other and they just kind of like mash the parts together as like separate sections of the song 
and not like actually blended together, which I think they did nicely here. You had some harpsichord and some other kind of classical Baroque lines going on, but not in your face with it. Like uh, some of the stuff on here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, their name, the New York Rock and Roll Ensemble, I, I wouldn't have put this on expecting to hear a song that sounds like the Zombies. I would expect something more orchestrated and huge and maybe over the top. Hmm. It, and uh, I was surprised by how many pleasant 60s folky psychedelic songs there are on it. Valid. Yeah, I mean, they kind of always felt to me like a band that was solidly existing in the rock world, but just showcasing some of their classical influence. Yeah, and the... I mean, what initially drew me in was the name of the band, which putting ensemble in your band name is very unrock and roll. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, who are these people that think that's a good idea? Yeah, anything that leads me to believe that it's a band intentionally jumping outside of their normal genre is like instantly intriguing to me and worth you know, picking up and sampling a few tracks at the very least. And this one was worth picking up and sampling. I think I picked this up in your garage when you were selling out of the garage here in Kalamazoo, Sean, Dad. I think so. I think, I think you came in and were like, what are some records that I should buy that we could talk about on the podcast someday? And I was like, well, there's this band, the New York Rock and Roll Ensemble. They're great. I think you'll dig them. And here we are over a year later. Wow. 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 I'm glad that we brought this record because I've known of them for a long time, but I've never really spent much time with them. This definitely feels like a Peter record, I would say. It's yeah. got that 60s psych pop vibe that I think you get into really easily. Yeah. As soon as I was checking it out, getting ready for this, I was saying to myself, and why haven't you been spinning this constantly for the past 15 years? <laughs> Always something new to look forward to. Just when you've thought you've heard every good record in those dollar bins, they pull you back in. Yeah. I, at some point I must've checked out like half of it. Cause when I went to the YouTube video to preview it, it was right in the middle of the video. So I know I had <laughs> spent a little time with them, but ready for more. And I would say it would unexpectedly be a pick for me because of my general opposition to anything that sounds Baroque in nature. True. <laughs> True. But somehow it kind of works with this band for me. Yeah, I can't explain it. If we try, you might suddenly realize you don't like the record, so. That's true. <laughs> it would be a threat to my integrity as a person who dislikes things that are Baroque in nature. If it, if it ain't Baroque... Oh, okay, I'm going to tell you about this band now. I don't even want to hear that joke. <laughs> so this is some dudes from New Jersey, right? And three of these dudes went to Juilliard, and they're the only three dudes you can find information about. This was an interesting thing that I think says something about the band in that there are five total members Three of them were Juilliard trained musicians. 
from whom there's quite a bit of information about them. And then they add two rock and roll dudes in New York to the band to give them that rock and roll sound. And you can't find anything about those dudes (laughs) (laughs) off the radar. Yeah. I'm just waiting for this episode to come out and one of our fans to be like, you don't know these legendary psych rock gods. No, I I can feel it, (laughs) man. Unless it's really underground. The two that I couldn't find information, the rock and roll guys are Brian Corrigan and Cliff Nivison. And as far as I could tell, they, if they were involved in other things after this, it was not noted enough to show up on the internet anywhere. So if anyone out there has that info, make me look like a dumbass, please. I would love to <laughs> know it. Email I'd buy that podcast at gmail.com. <laughs> we haven't mentioned our Gmail in a long time. I know. I saw an opportunity <laughs> and I took it. Well done. So another absurdity with this band, they form in 1967 and they play a Halloween dance at Juilliard, their first show, and then get signed to Atlantic Records. <laughs> oh, man. Wow. Uh, some folks just have it too easy. Yeah. Reading that, I was just like, what in the world? Like that, that doesn't happen. No, they're living in a fantasy world. True. And it was quite the, it seemed like a nice little fantasy world for about five years for him as the New York rock and roll ensemble. They, Leonard Bernstein, the esteemed composer composer yeah yeah they mentioned him in that rem song it's the end of the world as we know it and i feel fine he's one of the many names in there (laughs) yeah i think he did like west side story yeah yeah he liked them and had them perform with him and they also got to play a bunch of television shows like late night tv shows they performed on back in the day so they had a, a nice little run in the beginning there. They also, two members of the band, Michael Kamen and Mark Snow, were classmates with I'd Buy That alumni Janice Ian, and in fact played with her at one point. Now I should note that Mark Snow is like his later name. Yeah, his name at the time, his last name at least, was Fulterman. I didn't write down his first name at the time. So just as we'll go with Mark Snow. We'll go with Mark Snow, his name he wants now. And what else is Mark Snow famous for? Oh, we'll get there. Let me play another track first, though. (laughs) You do that. I want to play the song Mr. Tree. to play in the snow. 
that song i would think those guys were british yeah it's, definitely some kinks sound to it for sure absolutely love it especially with that eerie almost toy sounding keyboard punctuating in between the vocals there like that's classic 60s psych pop for sure and once again didn't really display the more classical leanings of this album <laughs> no not at all <laughs> there's a reason for that i'm not gonna say what it is <laughs> it's up to us to figure it out it's just that i don't like baroque things so that's why you would go with that selection yeah well that was michael Kamen on the blippy little keyboard things he does the key type things on this album you got the aforementioned Mark Snow playing drums and a little bit of oboe, because why not? Nice. Then uh, the third of the music school chaps from this band was Dorian Rudnitsky, who played bass and also cello. And all of them sing at different points on this album. Mostly you get Cliff and Brian, the two rock and roll fellas who played the guitars in this band. Once again, that's Brian Corrigan, Cliff Nivison on the guitars, and they mostly do the singing. Okay. The arranging and the rest of it fell to the uh, the music school nerds. The Juilliard alum. The Juilliard alum. So they made this album with John Lindell and Shadow Morton. <laughs> Do you know Shadow? I don't know Shadow. Do you know John Lindell? Don't know John Lindell. That name it sounds sounds so familiar to me and I couldn't put my finger on it. Yeah. It's mean, driving me nuts. It's like not John Lydon from the Sex Pistols. <laughs> no. And not John Linnell from They Might Be Giants. Also not that one. 
But Shadow Morton worked at the Brill Building at one point ah, yes. as a songwriter and then became a producer for Janice Ian, uh, as well as the Shangri-Las and the New York Dowls and a bunch of other bands, too. Yeah, you mentioned that they were classmates with Janice Ian. I read that they even performed with her at some point. That's true. Yeah. So, and they have working with some of the same people, so connected it looks like uh shadow morton wrote the shangri-la's big hit remember walking in the sand yeah i thought he wrote leader of the pack well I mean, he could have written that one too but i'm just he probably wrote them all looking at this song first yeah he did a lot of work with them it seems yeah so they produced the album and new york rock and roll ensemble went on to record four more albums their third one, interestingly, Reflections. They did a collaboration with the legendary Greek composer Manos Hadzidikis. I apologize if I butchered that name, but he was he's considered like one of the great composers in Greek culture, like all of history kind of things. Uh-huh. And he was living in New York in New York in exile at the time because of a rise of fascism in Greece at that time and ended up collabing with these chaps. <laughs> and it's really interesting album as well. If you stumble on that one, also worth checking out. Reflections? Reflections. Okay. They apparently kind of blame it on their fall <laughs> as well, though, from... Uh, an upward trajectory of becoming more and more famous, and they put this album out and kind of went on the backslide from there. The Reflections album? Yeah, it really, it was a shift from, you know, combining Baroque classical influence mixed with just garage rock and roll or like 60s rock. And then on this album Reflections, it's, more like modern classical with like some blending of rock elements, but it feels more just like a modern classical album. Yeah. It's funny. We were talking earlier about expecting to hear more of a classical sound to this. And yeah, like instead at the time they had developed a following for their more rock based sound. And then when they leaned heavier into classical, they apparently lost a lot of the fans. Yeah, and it was a different type of classical. It was less melodic, more kind of dissonant or kind of exotic sounding to Western ears, I would say. And yeah. You know, this album that we're listening to, their self-titled debut, came out in 1968. That was the same year that the Electric Prunes put out Mass in F Minor. Which is like a meeting of garage, psychedelic, and would you say more classical sounds, Sean? Kind of classical, but more church music. Yeah. Yeah, true. Just thinking, like, it's just thinking of, yeah, people taking, like, this sort of raw rock and roll sound and mixing it with a very unexpected (laughs) other type of music. It it seems Mm -hmm. the late 60s, people were really trying out you know some interesting new directions 
Yeah. Well, yeah, and probably one of the easiest David Axelrod solo records to find is his rock version of Handel's Messiah. Yeah. Which is around the same time as well, maybe just a little bit later, but yeah. I, I love stuff like that where people combine rock with a influence that you wouldn't normally add, all the the jazz rock crossover, the classical rock, the church and gospel music crossover. There's some interesting things that were created. Yeah, having recently watched that Velvet Underground documentary that came out, I had that on the mind and was thinking about, you know, rock and roll Lou Reed mixing with classical composer John Cale. Mm -hmm. But from a, their results were very different as a result. (laughs) But John Cale was a drug dealer and I didn't get the sense any of these guys were drug dealers. (laughs) Yeah. They weren't into the seedier part of New York lifestyle. Yeah, or the like far out drony kind of classical. It seemed like they were more. Yeah. You know, Juilliard. Yeah. Well, as after that third record, they kind of lose some steam. Brian Corrigan leaves the band at that point. They put out two more records before just kind of calling it quits as the New York rock and roll ensemble. But it was not the end for these classical fellas who all went to Hollywood and struck it big out there. (laughs) Just a little bit, huh? Yeah. Michael Kamen, the keyboard player on this, went on to work with pretty much everyone famous in rock and roll world. He worked with Pink Floyd, Tom Petty, David Bowie, Metallica, as Peter referenced. Yeah, he scored the song Nothing Else Matters. He added the string arrangement for that, and they only used a small portion, a little bit of that on the released song. And I, and, it, and I think when he met them, when he met the guys from Metallica, they're like, oh, we, you know, we loved your arrangement so much. And he's like well, you guys barely used any of it. And they're like, no, but we have this elevator version. We call it the elevator version. <laughs> that, that we, we It's all the string arrangements and acoustic guitars. They ended up releasing it as a, a B-side to one of the other songs from the Black Album. So, and then, he en- and then he ended up rescoring the, scoring their symphony and Metallica concert, yeah. S&M, a few years later. Yeah. So, yeah, pretty much anyone who was rock and roll famous and wanted classical string stuff added they call up michael and he would do it that includes the cranberries also kate bush guns and roses a little november rain oh wow bell yeah and along with that he was making scores for movies including brazil memento Die Hard, Highlander. He did all the Die Hards, I think. Yeah. Or at least the, the original the three. three. Yeah. yeah. Wally, wow. he also did. So he he left his mark in that world for sure. Yeah, that's amazing. I didn't know any of that previous to this. I just thought this was a cool semi-forgotten band from the 60s, but it's it's awesome that they kept going. <laughs> yeah, they kind of put their fingerprint on a lot of stuff. It, what they did after was kind of bigger than yeah. you know, everything they did as this band. Cause Mark Snow also went to Hollywood to do soundtrack work and he did most famously the iconic X-Files theme. 
Peter's singing it, but he's getting away from the mic because he knows that I'll, I'll like feature <laughs> him with like the echo and all that, and he doesn't like it, so he's hiding. I can't whistle, so I can't do that. True that, that theme, but and he did the music for Millennium too. That was like the same people that made X Files right around that same time. Late, he just yeah. Mark Snow's name is all over stuff. Is oh yeah. He did Pee Wee's Playhouse. <laughs> he did uh, the In Crowd movie that we referenced when we did the Ramsey Lewis episode. He did Ernest Saves Christmas. Oh man, the cinematic masterpiece. Cinematic masterpiece. <laughs> Air breaks. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so many more movies and TV shows. He was all over that world. And Dorian uh, went on to play cello for a lot of soundtrack and film stuff as well out there. And like I said, Brian Corrigan, Cliff Nivison, no idea. But Brian Corrigan fathered Billy Corrigan. Oh, I, I wish. <laughs> any, any excuse I could have to talk Smashing Pumpkins on here? Yeah, the world is a vampire. The world is a vampire. I want to play a Stranger song now. They do a four-movement piece, the four seasons, and each movement is a season. And I want to play Spring because it's barely even music. So here's Spring. All right. back into an, an environments record there jeremy yeah a little bit of that a little bit of uh beaver and kraus vibes also i just kept thinking about the x-files theme while listening to that it kind of sounded like the 1968 version of the x-files theme song <laughs> <laughs> the truth is out there yeah <laughs> true that was i wanted to display you know, one of the further extremes on this record because it 
it's a very diverse record. <laughs> it's, it's very all over the place. And I felt like that song really grabbed an extreme where it's a blending of nature sounds with just a tiny bit of melody. And despite still being kind of Baroque in nature, it gets more impressionistic. Mm. Yeah, field recordings. I mean, I could swear even the keyboard playing was out in the field with them. True. I could not find info as to whether or not the keyboard part was recorded in a field. <laughs> Very soothing. That was spring, the spring movement. That was spring in a four-movement piece called The Seasons, in which each one was a season. Which famously Vivaldi Vivaldi did that, who was a Baroque composer. So that was one thing kind of interesting to me. They do a Bach trio sonata on here. They, on their next album, and what became one of their most well known performances was called Brandenburg from the Brandenburg Concertos which are, you know, one of the more famous things in classical. Everything felt like kind of surface-level classical influences. (laughs) (laughs) Which is interesting. At Juilliard, you know, the 60s, you'd think they'd be going, kind of like when we talked on our Christmas episode about Ferrante and Teicher, like being probably learning John Cage-type stuff. And for it to be surface level. (laughs) Level classical stuff seems like a surprise from Juilliard students. Yeah. Yeah, I wonder if if it's like they were trying to make, like, stick to accessible kind of like points of reference that more people might get. Well, it could, I suppose it could very well be that they were sick of all the stuff they had been studying and wanted to get back to the basics, like what drew them to music initially. True. If you read... The liner notes in the album, it is written by a Martin Gottfried drama critic for Women's Wear Daily, and he kind of just goes on about how people try to overcomplicate things and over-intellectualize things, and New York Rock and Roll Ensemble is here to just make you dance again and just get you back to like the core. Yeah. Which seemed kind of funny because that is not the vibe I get from this album. Especially with Spring, <laughs> the one we just listened to. Yeah. And any of it, really. Yeah. Like, yeah. there's rock influence for sure, and songs that are basically just rock songs. But even those are not super danceable Up, or upbeat, like dancey, simple, poppy. Yeah. Yeah. So interesting. Yeah. It, it lent an interesting view onto. I mean, I feel like it's captured in that name, New York Rock and Roll Ensemble. Like, they think they're doing a certain thing, but what we're all hearing is different than what they think they're making. That can happen. (laughs) Absolutely. So, Sean, did you find anything else that sounds like this? Yeah. I got your short list of recommended albums. The other thing I was thinking about with this record is that the common narrative for what created the genre of progressive rock 
was the blending of rock and roll and classical music. And that pioneering is often attributed to the group, the Moody Blues, who, you know, have gotten a lot of press. They're a famous group, but I feel like just about all their records, except maybe Days of Future Past, just sit around forever. And I highly recommend their 1969 album, On the Threshold of a Dream. It's a little spacier and more on the psychedelic vibe, but is a really interesting blend of rock and classical in a very like moody kind of drifting manner. Second recommendation is Lalo Schifrin's Rock Requiem from 1971. That one has a little bit more of a jazz blend to it than... I mean, there's really no jazz on this record, so it's a bit of a different shift, but some similar energy, uh, some church music in there, and lots of cool orchestration and unexpected shifts. And then I would also highly recommend another record from 1971, the debut self-titled album by the Electric Light Orchestra. Obviously, everyone knows that band, but um, their early stuff is more of a classical blend because that was the original concept of starting that group. Fewer hits, not quite the disco mega hits that happened earlier on, but check out the early stuff. It's usually pretty cheap, too. And then a third record from 1971, Jimmy Spheris, Isle of View. Recommend that album as often as I possibly can for the rest of my life. It's an amazing record. Our very first episode. Our very first episode, taking it right back to the beginning. I I don't know if I would call that like a highly classical influenced album, but there's a lot of arrangement on it. And it just, I just kept thinking about that record while I was listening to this one. And then the final recommendation, another one that we've talked about on the show, another early episode, Spirit, the family that plays together from 1968. Yeah. That's a good parallel to this record. Yeah. Definitely. One more that I'll add to that is a Procol Harum album. Ooh. Of course, you know, Procol Harum's big hit, A Whiter Shade of Pale, is a very obvious marriage of classical and rock and roll. Uh, They have an album, though, from 1970 called Home that I think would pair nicely with this album. So, you know, like the, some of those Baroque leanings, minor key songs, if you like that vibe of this album, I would definitely recommend checking out Procol Harum Home. Right on. Yeah, I like some of the Procol Harum stuff, but I have not dug in enough to their their extensive catalog, so I'll definitely check that one out next time I see it. Yeah, you'll see it out there. It's a colorful album cover. Yeah, and Procol Harum is also a a group that often gets talked about as one of the first progressive rock bands. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's very early on that they were, I mean, progressive rock starts, what, about 1968, 69, uh, and they're right in there. 67 was the year that it started, because that's when Procol Harum self-titled with Whiter Shade of Pale came out, and that's Mm -hmm. when the Moody Blues record Days of Future Past also came out. So New York rock and roll ensemble was definitely a part of this new movement of blending classical and rock, but you never hear them talked about as one of the proto prog rock bands or one of the fathers of this style, but you know, they should, it's an important group. They made some cool music. Yeah. I'm so glad to be reminded to listen to more of them. There you go. Thank you for bringing this record, Jeremy. 
Anytime, Peter. I will bring you this record anytime. Anytime <laughs> at all. At all. Night or day, rain or shine. I like the service. Yeah. With a smile. With a smile. <laughs> well, do we have any final thoughts before this final track? No. No, I'm about spent. I've we've been gone in so many different directions with this record. I'm just loopy now. What are we gonna I guess I will say if you didn't like anything I played here, still check this record out because there still might be stuff you like on it. <laughs> or check out a different record by them too. Oh yeah. If you if this isn't your vibe, check out Reflections. Yeah, Reflections is cool. Also the album from nineteen seventy one Rollover is really cool. And that one's more of like a straightforward rock and roll kind of sound. And it's only three years later, but it sounds like a more like a more modern rock sound than even this one. Less of the the sixties kinks psych pop going on. And if you're feeling really adventurous, check out Michael Kamen's work with Metallica. <laughs> or don't. That's also fine. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I feel good about this. Thank you so much, listeners. You can always support us and get some cool stuff in return at patreon.com slash I'd buy that podcast. What are we going out on, Jeremy? We're going to go out on side B track two, Studio Atlantis. Studio. <laughs> Studio. Studio. Atlantis. And this one, I think, captures the blending of classical and rock. We're finally going to get there. We're finally going to, I'm finally going to give you a taste right here at the end of what these <laughs> chaps can do. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much for listening to I'd Buy That for a Dollar. This is Peter Cook signing off. I'm Sean Hartman. And I am Jeremy Ruggles. Bobby Billy Brown Call a gun 